Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, and I and I am certainly glad to be back on the air. I must say that, um, to me, it seems like it has been a lot longer since I was on the air last, although I will admit that the last time I was actually on the air with you guys was back at the start of this week, but I don't know why. Uh, to me, it seems like I've, it's been longer, but, you know, Regardless, I'm glad to be back on the air. Uh, as I've said before, and I'd say it again, uh, life does not always revolve around uh, podcasting. You know, given that I you know, do enjoy podcasting with 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 you guys, uh, but I know that life does not always revolve around uh, a side hobby, or really in just in general when it comes to one particular thing you enjoy uh, doing. Uh, but nonetheless. Um, when you have time to get back on the air like I do right now at this uh, particular moment, uh, seize it, because you never know what the next day might bring. So here I am um, looking forward to uh, sharing with you all, uh, my uh, faithful and ardent listeners, another episode of Alvin F. Oichel's uh, disaster on Lake Erie, the 1841 wreck of the uh, steamship Erie. Now, before we get into our uh, next uh, podcast segment, um, I should tell you all um, what I uh, what my wife and I did the other day. Um, you know, we did um, take a, a, a day trip to one of our favorite historic places, being uh, historic uh, Colonial Williamsburg. It was certainly great to be back in the um, in the heart of uh, Virginia's historic triangle. Uh, it had been a while since we were in Williamsburg last, although we were in uh, Jamestown uh, last month for uh, military through the ages. But nevertheless, it's always great to be back and uh, learn uh, new information that we didn't know before. That's the beauty of uh, going somewhere like Williamsburg or anywhere else that we enjoy uh, visiting, whether it's in uh, Virginia or even when we've been out of state uh, in, in visiting historic places where we you know, have knew of uh, information beforehand, but we learned a bunch of information that we didn't know um, prior to um, entering uh, or visiting the uh, particular uh, place of uh, historical uh, significance. And um, I should also say that um, the other day when I was out uh, running errands that... Um, you know, sometimes you never know who you um, run into. Um, you know, you know someone that you haven't seen in a long time, or um, uh, and all that. Uh, so it's always good to be able to uh, run into people that you haven't uh, seen in some time. And what do you know? I ran into a former uh, elementary school teacher of mine that I hadn't seen in about five years, and uh, it was really nice to see her and uh, catch up on um, on how she and her family were doing. So. Uh, in other words, you know, um, you never know um, when you're going to run into, like I said, you never know when you're going to run into people um, when it's least expected. But nonetheless, it's uh, it's uh, it's a good thing because uh, you never uh, forget those uh, moments. So uh, the most important thing that we need to do going forward is uh, focus on where we're going to be going in this uh, next segment to disaster on Lake Erie, the 1841 wreck of the steamship Erie. We will be uh, discussing um, about the uh, broad uh, diversity of um, peoples uh, on board Lake Erie. We will also find out if, in fact, uh, government officials had been uh, concerned about the um, safety of steam... Or rather, if government officials were concerned about steamboat safety. In other words, were there uh, particular uh, steamboat incidents? Or had there been steamboat incidents involving steamship Erie? I, I should say uh, boat incidents. Maybe that's what I should say because it's not all confined to just steamboats or steamships. Both steamboats and steamships have, have seen their share of issues going into 1841 on the water where um, engines have been uh, severely destroyed, where, you know, people have been badly injured, or in some instances there have been losses of life. So we've got to find out if government officials are um, 
are concerned about these um, mishaps and if any legislation has been enacted by Congress to modify um, existing problems. We will also need to know um, other uh, such uh, factors as to where um, the painters, in, in other words, what all are the painters, um, where are they going after um, Steamship Erie and the equipment that they've brought on, uh, will that get moved? Uh, so th these are just some of the uh, handful of, um, mat of um, items that we will be uh, discussing in this next uh, podcast segment episode. So I think it's fair to say that we better get this show on the road and uh, be prepared for our first uh, leadoff uh, question. So here we go, folks. Was there a diverse group of people whom boarded onto Steamship Erie come August 9th, 1841? Uh, to me, that's an obvious uh, yes for that question. There were those considered to be both young and old, including people of very uh, poor status, most notably from Europe. So we do have a lot of immigrants, folks, who we could say are between middle class and poor um, status ranking, but the majority of them are are more on the uh, lower working class, uh, poor um, scale spectrum. Then there are uh, those whom are boarding Erie whom are not immigrants, but they are um, natural, we could probably say that they are natural born uh, United States uh, citizens. Uh, one in particular I found was interesting was um, a fellow by the name of William E. Camp. He was considered to be one of the select few whom was uh, who more than likely was determined to be uh, financially well off. He um, was a hotel owner, and he had gone uh, into uh, South Central Pennsylvania around Harrisburg to uh, check on one of the hotel properties he owned. And so he was making his way uh, back from uh, wherever he was originally, um, he was making his way back home from wherever he originally um, had moved to or was uh, currently residing. And so, so William E. Camp is one of the select few that is uh, well-to-do on board the ship, given that he was a, a hotel owner. Uh, if you're a hotel owner back then, that definitely could... Uh, signify or um, or could uh, display your, rather I should say, your uh, wealth status in society, because very few people were considered to be hotel owners. Now, uh, some passengers on board the Erie were returning to their homes per cities along the Great, along great Lakes waters, in this case being uh, Great Lakes of uh, Erie and Michigan, given that uh, steamship Erie uh, traveled along those waters. There was a fellow by the name of Henry Freeman, um, a former one-time native to Jamestown, New York, whom was returning back to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he worked as a drugstore clerk. A fellow by the name of Orrin Green was moving from Rushville, New York, which is outside of Buffalo, to go westward into Michigan. Various others were returning westward um, or rather, I should say, we're going westward to visit relatives. So, yes, we've got plenty of people on board this ship, the steamship Erie, whom are uh, starting new lives in the new world. And then we have um, a handful of passengers whom are going either back home or are uh, moving, say, in this case, Orrin Green from Rushville, New York, uh, westward to Michigan, and various others going west to visit relatives in uh, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. Uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that um, that old Northwest Territory, a.k.a. present-day mid present day Midwest. Now, the uh, majority of uh, German and Swiss passengers aboard Erie were in large uh, cluster groups. In other words, the families came over in large groups. Uh, one family in particular that interested me was the Weigold family, whom comprised of seven members. I know seven may not be the biggest number, but to me this is. 
So the Weigold family arrived on July 30, 1841, aboard steamship Utica from Le Havre. From Le Havre. Ten days, two weeks later, the Weigolds are in Buffalo, where they would depart aboard steamship Erie and go westward into Ohio, which would be their new um, hometown. Would be Ohio would be the state where the Weigolds would be establishing their um, their new lives in. I think it's probably fair to say that most of the immigrants on board Erie probably were going into Ohio, but that's not to say that others could have been going to, into Indiana, Michigan, um, even Illinois. But I think most of them are probably going to Ohio. That's just me. Uh, what company did, this, did the eight painters, or I should say the maritime painters on board Erie work for? Remember we talked about the uh, maritime painters from a previous podcast? Well, we're going to mention them again here, but uh, what company do you think that these eight painters, uh, or I should say maritime uh, painters on board Steamship Erie worked for? Well, if they're maritime painters, folks, isn't it fair to say that they uh, work with within, say, like the Department of, of the Navy or they have connections I mean, maritime meaning out on the waters. So obviously, I can tell you this much: they don't work for Sherwin Williams because there is there is no such thing as Sherwin Williams in uh, 1841. Now, of course, uh, Sherwin Williams's uh, headquarters is in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, but in 1841, there is no such thing as Sherwin Williams. But anyways, uh, the eight maritime painters are employed by William. G. Miller of Buffalo, New York. Well, you know, when you think about how how much Buffalo has grown since it was first established in 1832, I think it'd be fair to say that Buffalo has jobs being um, created. Buffalo is one of those cities at this point in time where jobs are being created year in and year out in almost every industrial profession, and one of them being in the uh, paint job business. When you have a population that is almost uh, shy of 20,000 going into the early 1840s, you can expect any kind of, um, any kind of work that can um, bring in people who want to start a new life and or those whom are looking to um, come from point A to point B, like say from uh, from a from one of the uh, say original 13 colonies, aka states along the sea coast and come westward for new uh, for a new life, new line of work. Why not? Why not seize upon it? Seize the day, seize the moment. The eight painters had uh, repainted large spans, or rather, I should say, um, large um, spans are not confined to just one term, but when I think of large spans, like, how about large uh, arches, arches uh, of a bridge that help uh, support a bridge in terms of uh, its overall structure. But the eight painters had repainted large spans, in this case, large sides of wood that covered Erie's interior and exterior. So, given that they've just repainted the large spans that had covered of Steamship Erie's interior and exterior, their next task was to paint another steamboat known as the James Madison, whom just so happened to be the sister ship of Erie. She was owned, like uh, Erie, um, the James Madison was also owned by Charles Manning Reed. Now, as for the uh, steamship James Madison, she is located 85 miles west of Buffalo in Erie. So, it's interesting to note, folks. I mean, you know, we do forget that even steamships have have sister ships. Uh, the only uh, ships that I knew of that had uh, sister ships, and and this is true, folks, the only ships that I knew of uh, for the longest time that had sister ships were... Uh, Titanic and Lusitania. Of course, you know, Titanic was with White Star Line. Lusitania was was with uh, Cunard Line. So Titanic's twin sister was Olympic. 
Lusitania's tw twin sister was uh, Mauritania. So it just so happens that uh, Steamship Erie's twin sister is the James Madison. Both James Madison and Erie were built in the same Presque Isle shipyard in 1837. Well, you know, Titanic and Olympic were both built in the same year at um, in Belfast, Ireland, uh, by the company Harland and Wolf. Um, so, what do you know? Both James Madison and Erie were built in the same Presque Isle shipyard. So it's it's just one of those unique coincidences, and we forget sometimes that uh, ships don't always have to be built one at a time. They can they are always. In many instances, uh, ships are being built. They're being built uh, greater than one, meaning that, say, three or five ships are being built at the same time, depending on how big the shipyard itself is. Uh, were there deckhands on board Erie? Uh, yes. Most of you probably know what a deckhand is, but I bet there are some of you out there who might not know exactly what a deckhand does. But the deckhands um, on board um, Erie were focused primarily on assisting with, the, with loading immense amounts of freight into Erie's large cargo hold, the cargo hold being at the bottom of the uh, ship. But as for the primary duties of a deckhand, or rather I should say for deckhands, their primary duties consist of cleaning to maintaining a vessel's exterior, or I should say outside. At best, roughly 30 tons of cargo were being placed into Erie's uh, cargo hold. 30 tons, that, that's a lot. I mean, it, shoot, there are ships bigger than Erie that could place far more um, cargo in the cargo hold based upon uh, tonnage levels, but for Erie to have about 30 tons of cargo being placed in her uh, cargo hold, that's, uh, that's pretty high. The cargo itself was valued around $20,000, which in 1841, um, which by 1841 standards was a lot of money. But if you compare that into uh, modern day times, I know uh, the year I'm going to give you give you all here in a moment. It's going to sound odd because here we are in 2023, but the year I'm I'm mentioning in terms of present day is just over 10 years old. So if the value of the uh, cargo that was placed in um, Erie's cargo hold was valued around twenty thousand dollars. In 1841, how much do you think it would have been worth in the pres in the in the 21st century in terms of where we're at, um, say within the past uh, 12 years, about half a million dollars. But that estimate or that estimated portion, folks, came about in the year 2011, 12 years ago. So obviously the value would have changed by now, and one reason could probably be because of what happened three years ago with the global pandemic, but the, if we uh, go 12 years back into the year 2011 and, and value this uh, cargo that was placed in our cargo hold, it would be worth about um, half a million dollars. And how ironic that in the year 2011, this book, that we're talking about, folks. Disaster on Lake Erie, the 1841 wreck of the steamship Erie, was first published. Now, isn't that something as well? Oh, I would definitely say yes in a heartbeat to that. So, the focus appeared to be on securing the cargo, but nobody did not check the status of Erie's three lifeboats, nor her life preserver jackets. Okay, think about this, folks. If it, you know, it's one thing yes to be concerned about securing the cargo so it doesn't uh, get out of line, uh, especially when going against unpleasant weather. Because you know, folks, steamboats and steamships aren't immune from unexpected weather, or I should say, inclement weather. But what about the lifeboats? Don't you need to check on the lifeboats to make sure that they, that if you have to lower them in the event of an emergency, that they will be lowered. Um, properly. 
And what about life jackets? Don't you need to make sure that people have access to life jackets so that they're not pushing one another just so that they just so that they can get access to one? There have to there has to be essential access to essential um, necessities at one point of a vessel, but at the same time at the opposite end because. You know, we could have people scattered all over the vessel. Is that a bad thing? No. But if you've got an emergency, people need to know where to go um, so that they have access to um, fundamental necessities as a means of survival. Despite Erie's uh, two new newcomers, an 11-year-old callboy, Andrew Blyla, and fireman John Harrington, had all the other crew personnel made this trip before? Yes. Key veteran personnel like wheelman Luther Fuller had been aboard Erie since her launching and maiden voyage. Captain Thomas Jefferson Titus and Luther Fuller knew how Erie operated in different um especially when it came to uh, different wind and water conditions. You know, think about it, folks. Water could start out calm. All of a sudden, halfway into your trip, uh, the water becomes choppy. It, beca it becomes rough. So you have to, you know, know how, how the, the conditions of the uh, water itself that you're uh, traversing or navigating along can change, especially when it's um, unexpected. And then wind conditions, you know, Winds could start out howling or um, blowing in from the southwest. All of a sudden, they could change and, um, and can blow uh, in a northerly um, direction. So you do need to know uh, not just so much um, the movement of winds per their direction, but how they can change as well at any moment's notice. Now, uh, before Erie could officially uh, depart from Buffalo Harbor, passengers, you know, they, they need time. What do they need time to do? They need time to place their belongings in proper uh, compartmental areas per their cabins <laughs> to getting ready for tea, tea being the evening meal. Now, I think it'd be fair to say that in 1841, you probably might only have two big meals aboard um, a steamship vessel. You get your breakfast, and then you get your um, midday uh, meal that would be pretty much the equivalent of dinner. And then um, early evening, you might get something like a supper. You know, you get um, something kind of like what we might think of as like finger foods, uh, or small little hors d'oeuvres to go with the beverage. So it might be fair to say that when you're aboard a steamship, you, it might as well be like the equivalent of the moving tavern. Because, you know, taverns, as I'm always being reminded of when I go to Colonial Williamsburg, uh, and when my wife and I were there on uh, Thursday, uh, we got to tour the Raleigh Tavern. That's always neat. But you know, back in the 18th century, not to get off track, but I have to, you know, I had to remind myself, you know, people were very thankful to have a meal and you didn't get to customize it your way. So in other words, there were no such things as have it your way like Burger King does. You were just very thankful to to eat what the cook gave you. And if you didn't like it, well, the cook probably would have had every right to say to you, well, guess what? You'll get nothing and like it. So... Not to get political or anything, but sometimes I think we do get a little spoiled, and yet we forget about the fact that people from centuries before, you know, three centuries before us, didn't get to have these have it your way options. They were just very thankful to take what was given to them. So, anyways, uh, let's think about some other uh, factors here, too. Um, how about. Uh, those whom are at work in terms of getting prepared or t partaking in getting uh, this uh, steamship prepared for its uh, departure. you got the firemen whom are hard at work. They are below the decks where the burnt wood sent smoke up the twin stacks. 
Heat within the boilers was helping create steam to rev or start up the engines. The paddle wheels, one per each side, hitting the water fiercely as Erie's hull, a.k.a. her main body, got set into motion. So, you know, folks, let's be reminded that this, you know, we don't have car keys back then. So it's not like we could just turn on our keys and start the engines, back her up, and go about um, our journey. That's not how, that's not how um, the steamships work, folks. So we've got to be stoking the, um, we've got to, those stokers have to be moving. They have to be fueled, and it has to be fueled um, really almost to max level so that people, uh, the passengers can feel the warmth. Uh, they have to also ensure that um, that the engine is fully revved up, ready to go. That, I mean, this is all work onto itself, folks. Twenty-seven-year-old uh, Edgar Clemens, who whom was the first engineer next in line to the chief engineer, and a first engineer is in charge of engine watch keeping, performing inspections on what was then a six-hour watch. And as for um, first engineer Edgar Clemens, he uh, noted the deck wasn't hot, which meant that passengers were allowed to sit from above near the confines of where heat left the boiler's vicinity. William Hughes, the second mate, recorded it in his journal log where passengers rested comfortably along the deck above the boiler room. So, you know, there's really no concern. You know, at least for now, there's no concern. I just wonder if it'll stay this way. Was Buffalo Harbor right behind New York City as a vital 19th century crossroads hub? Yes, Buffalo Harbor catered to westbound passengers coming from Europe, along with catering to transporting produce and other goods produced in the Midwest, like Ohio, to eastbound markets like New York City and 3,000 miles across the ocean into European cities like London and Paris. I tell you, Buffalo Harbor, or just let alone Buffalo, New York, really is a an essential uh, crossroads hub. And I will have to point out, folks, that even as we went, went into the 20th century, Buffalo, New York was still a vital hub. And it remained that way up until late 1950s. And I know this very well because, uh, for one, my wife and I uh, have vacationed in the Thousand Islands region of New York State, which is an incredible area. Uh, for those of you who haven't been, I strongly recommend that you go. Uh, that region is north of uh, Syracuse and Watertown. It uh, comprises of such places like uh, Alexandria Bay, um, Clayton, uh, Sackett's Harbor, uh, Messina, Ogdensburg, Havelton, Lafargeville, DePeister, Cape Vincent. Uh, then you get into Tug Hill, the Tug Hill region with a place known as Lowellville. But if you go into the Thousand Islands, uh, it, it's it's just uh, it's a breathtaking region. And believe me, there's more than a thousand islands, and it's also where Thousand Island dressing got started. I, I kid you not, folks. It, it truly is. But uh, the reason why I know Buffalo had pretty much uh, was a, a vital crossroads hub up until the late 1950s, it was because every ship uh, that came through um, the Great Lakes, pretty much it ended at Buffalo, then um, a reversal of fortune, or fortune for the better on one hand, but fortune for the worse on the other happened. In 1959, uh, the St. Lawrence Seaway was opened, which meant that the seaway connected, um, connect, uh, was linked to all the Great Lakes. It bypassed Buffalo. Buffalo was left out in the open to, um, was left to dry. Ships didn't uh, pass through Buffalo like they used to with, um, with uh, dropping off and picking up goods. So up until 1959, uh, prior to the St. Lawrence uh, Seaway's completion, uh, Buffalo was the, um, 
really was the mecca for uh, for east and westbound uh, freight. But over time, folks, Buffalo did um, Buffalo. Uh, for those of you who haven't been to Buffalo, New York, I do strongly recommend going. Uh, when when my wife and I went to Niagara Falls five years ago, we did spend a day and a half in Buffalo, and the, and they have really done a great job up there restoring that city. And the only reason I know it is because I heard some people say uh, who were once from there that years ago when Buffalo went downhill, it it just had the city had a hard time recovering, but. Thank heavens there's been enough um, money that has been well invested into the uh, city to where um, people are coming back and living in the um, in the heart of the uh, of the city in the in the urban area, uh, the canal side uh, to Buffalo. Uh, it it all looks great and believe it or not, folks, that's Buffalo wings. What we know is uh, chicken wings that you can get at restaurants. But that all got started in Buffalo, New York. My wife and I even ate at the original. We ate at one of the original eateries uh, where uh, Buffalo Wings got started. It was It's called Anchor Bar. It, it's still there. Uh, I know that someone else uh, was the first to introduce uh, Buffalo uh, Wings. And unfortunately, he never got the full credit that he deserved. Uh, but I learned about that through the um, show, The Food That Built America. But... But anyways, I, not to get off track, and I do apologize, but uh, it is important to be reminded that uh, Buffalo, New York, at one time before 1959, had really been a, a vital um, crossroads uh, hub, given that uh, for years uh, Buffalo Harbor had catered to westbound passengers coming from Europe, along with catering to transporting produce and other goods produced in the Midwest what we now know as Ohio, to eastbound markets like New York City and 3,000 miles across the ocean into European cities like London and Paris. At what exact time did Steamship Erie depart Buffalo Harbor on Monday, August the 9th, 1841? At around uh, 10 minutes after 4 o'clock, so that would be uh, 4.10 Eastern Standard Time, the journey from Buffalo Harbor to Chicago, Illinois, would be 900 miles. To me, that would sound like a 19th century version of a Griswold trip. For those of you very familiar with National Lampoon's vacation, when you know Chevy Chase got, or AKA Clark Griswold, figured it out, it, we've got a 2,460-mile trip from uh, where we live in Chicago, Illinois, to uh, Los Angeles, California. So a 900-mile trip from uh, Buffalo Harbor in Buffalo, New York, to Chicago, Illinois, might as well be the equivalent of a um, of a Griswold journey. However, I I cannot um, compare under no circumstances would I um, even think of wanting to compare what happened um, on board uh, the steamship Erie to what. Um, Chevy Chase and his family uh, encountered in the movie. We just can't do that. It it it's it's not right. But uh, but anyways, uh, European travelers probably felt relieved, knowing they were now on their last leg of a long uh, trip. Decades um, after 1807, saw passengers in large numbers navigate the Great Lakes. Remember, folks, 1807, that was the year that uh, Robert Fulton made the first successful um, ship voyage uh, via steamboat per his vessel, uh, the Claremont, up from um, from the uh, Hudson River into uh, Albany, New York. It took about 32 hours, but he did it in two days, and then uh, coming back was about uh, 30, um, 30 hours. So we had certainly come a long way in these uh, past uh, three de decades since uh, Robert uh, Fulton's uh, first uh, successful voyage uh, via a steamboat uh, in terms of not having to rely on sail to get from point A to point B. Name uh, one of Steamship Erie's primary functions. How about carrying um, and transporting cargo? William Hughes, uh, the second mate, was assigned uh, to designating storage space uh, 
At 25 years old, uh, William Hughes is in his first season on board Erie, but yet he spent seven years as a, as a sailor. Second mate Hughes performed uh, storage space tasks from helping a woman going to Milwaukee, Wisconsin with luggage containing food preserves to spotting painters coming aboard with an assortment of paint-related material only to later spot the items placed on the main deck versus the cargo hold. Well, this to me ought to seem like somewhat of a... Uh, a red flag, knowing that paint-related materials have been placed on the main deck instead of in the cargo hold. If weather from heavy seas to squalls, and for those of you who aren't familiar with what squalls are, they are strong winds which come on at a sudden onset where wind speed increases to 16 knots and remains steady at 22 knots or greater for roughly one minute. If all that was bad enough, what other element played havoc to ships on Great Lakes waters? How about fire? Considering steamships were made of wood, and wood itself lacked true resistance, which meant once fires broke out, any means of preparation for the unexpected were minimal at best. Prior to August 9, 1841, Steamship Erie had encountered several issues at sea. I, well, you know, her, on her maiden voyage, she had issues with her engine, and luckily she that was able to be repaired in, in Cleveland to where she was back out on the water the following day. But I do have to uh, tell you all that, unfortunately, prior to August 9th, 1841, Steamship Erie has encountered uh, several issues at sea. Uh, the first one was um, the same year that she officially began um, navigating uh, Great Lakes waters, but it occurred between September 22nd and, and the 24th of 1838. The Erie struck... The Erie was rather stuck between Buffalo and Black, New York. May 30th, 1839, she collided with and sank a British steamer known as the Minnesotunk in, the, in a river below uh, Malden, Ontario. Or rather, I should say Malden, Ontario, Canada. September 10th, 1839, at the end of the Detroit River, Erie collided with steamer Daniel Webster. In August 4th, 1840, Erie experienced boiler issues which arose in the Detroit River, leading to six people's deaths. Erie was towed into Detroit by steamer Milwaukee. I tell you folks, um, no matter how elegant these ships are, there is always going to be something that's going to take, that's going to, um, that's going to coincide uh, to where, for some of these ships, it's a matter of make or break. They might get lucky the first go-around or two in, in terms of uh, getting fixed and repaired, but what about the third or the fourth time they're back out on the water? Are these ships on borrowed time? Is there something that's being ignored? Is somebody willing to investigate why there are issues? And if so, how can they be prevented from happening? What could the government do that they haven't already done beforehand? We might be finding that out here shortly, folks. Uh, did Steamship Erie encounter uh, rough weather not long after departing Buffalo Harbor? Yes, uh, a few hours into the trip, a storm emerged, which resulted initially in waves coming over the decks. The waves coming over Erie's decks soaked several passengers to where many couldn't attend having tea as a result of becoming suddenly sick. And we're not talking dinky little waves, folks. We could be looking probably at waves coming over the deck. Who knows? These could be five to ten foot waves. 
I mean, there is rough weather, folks, and and when you're out on the uh, Great Lakes waters, it doesn't always have to be in the month of November when the skies turn gloomy and nothing is ever certain. It could be fair to say that even uh, before the month of November that nothing is certain, especially knowing that, that um, you know, here it is in August. I mean, it's not cold, but even in um, mild, mild to... Um, even with mild temperatures, or I should say warm temperatures, you know, the Great, La- the Great Lakes, uh, the waters on the Great Lakes have tricks up their sleeves that can, um, that can catch uh, passengers or really, in a sense, passengers, because given that, you know, those whom are uh, traveling on by boat for leisurely purposes, a.k.a. tourists, they're in the elite minority. Most people don't have time to really travel on board a boat uh, leisurely. Those who do probably are of uh, upper tier, um, upper tier class status. But those whom are traveling are doing so either because they're starting, they're starting a new life in the new world, or they are doing it for uh, business purposes. But nonetheless, if you're getting five to ten foot waves, yeah, that could definitely not only throw you for a curveball, but it could make you sick. So waves, yes, coming over um, Erie's decks uh, soaked several passengers to where many simply could not um, attend uh, evening uh, functions such as having tea. Edgar Clemens, uh, being a three-year veteran of the Erie, went about checking equipment from below decks in the midst of the storm, Erie was moving less than 16 miles per hour during uh, her first three hours under sail. Where would the Erie's first stop take her? It turns out that her first stop would actually take her in Erie, Pennsylvania. But that's not to say that she could possibly have to stop in... Um, somewhere uh, just south of Buffalo, but as of right now, her first official stop is really going to, is slated to be for Erie, Pennsylvania, but if she did have to stop and if she had to stop anywhere else in New York State before going to Erie, the only places I could think of that she would have to stop at would be around what was then um, the Hamlet's and if those of you who aren't sure what hamlets are, they still are today, H-A-M-L-E-T. Uh, a hamlet is a small settlement, or what we might think of as a small town or village. If Erie did have to stop anywhere else before her official, before her first official stop in Erie, Pennsylvania, it would have been in the hamlets of Dunkirk and Silver Creek, New York. As for the eight maritime painters of William G. Miller Company, they were slated to stop in Erie just a few hours away during the uh, first part of her, um, during the first part of the ride, rather, I should say. A ship uh, crew member uh, spotted uh, the painter's uh, supplies placed above the boiler. And this uh, crew member did the right thing by moving them elsewhere. But yet, it was one thing for the crew member to move them elsewhere, but if there was something he didn't do, he didn't um, go about finding the, um, finding, say, half of the eight um, member maritime painter crew and instruct them on where to uh, take the equipment. But at the same time, don't you think that this uh, crew person not only could have uh, found the uh, painters, but he could have gotten another crew member to help the painters um, bring the paint down to where it needed to be, and that was in the cargo hold. To me, it just didn't make any sense why that didn't happen. But all I mean, I, I do know that there were two new uh, crew members, being Andrew Blyla and uh, the other. Um, fella's uh, name uh, being um, John Harrington, but they were obviously busy doing other um, assignments, but 
there again, it just makes no sense that this other crewman, yes, he did the right thing by placing the items elsewhere, but obviously they were still not placed where they needed to be, and that was in the uh, cargo hold below. Now, had federal authorities expressed concerns regarding uh, dangers behind steamboat travel? Do you think federal authorities had expressed concerns? They had. Congress in 1838 uh, enacted the Steamboat Inspection Act, which went into law October 1st of that year. The legislation sought to help provide better safety for all passengers aboard uh, steamboat or steamship vessels. The law put into place um, the law. This law that was put into place uh, provided many uh, mandatory requirements, such as inspection of holes every 12 months and boilers every six months. Each vessel was required to have lifeboats, fire pumps, and a hose, signal lights, to having district inspectors per uh, each region issue license certificates or inspection certificates which were required to be listed in some visible um, part uh, for uh, public info or a visible spot for public info. So, you know, take, for example, you know, all of us who drive, what are we required every year to have done? We're required to have our cars undergo state inspections. And when they are inspected and they pass inspection, there is usually a, um, a notice or a, um, not a notice, but a, uh, some form of document, or we should say notice, that says um, that, you know, not only did your car pass inspection, but it's a, they place a reminder as to when it will need to be inspected in the future, meaning, um, let's say you got your car inspected on um, October 10th of, of last year. So if your um, marker or your... Um, notice says October 2023, that means that you will have to have your car inspected um, sometime before or or by um, October's end in 2023. So it's fair to say that, uh, like for example, with the hole, the inspection of the holes being done every 12 months, Think of that as like the equivalent of a modern-day car inspection. Even the same for having your uh, the boilers inspected every six months. That might as well be the equivalent of having your oil changed um, once ev after every 3,000 miles, depending on how much you're traveling um, during that uh, course of time. Now, Erie's inspection certificate for 1841 is not on record. Her regular uh, enrollment, or I should say um, official registration with the federal government, being uh, uh, which first took place, was recorded on October 4th of 1838. The same happened again on April 20th, 1839, and April 27th, 1840. No records for um, no. There were no records that yearly enrollment for 1841, including regular inspection, had been made since April 27, 1840. Now, what's going on here, folks? This is strange. Okay, April 27, 1840. That was the most recent um, enrollment official registration. Why isn't why hasn't anything else happened? How did Erie slip through the registration uh, renewal uh, process? I don't know. Hopefully, we can find that out before it's too late. Which steamship vessel was a few hours ahead of Erie? The Dewitt Clinton. We will continue to mention uh, more about her as we uh, progress with this uh, series. Captain Squires, whom was commander of the, De of the DeWitt Clinton, authorized his vessel into the port at Dunkirk. Okay, so he's not going into Erie, but he is taking his uh, vessel 
into the port at Dunkirk, south of Buffalo, as a result of intense winds, rough and unsettling waves. Okay, so yes, he's probably not only dealing with intense winds, but he could be dealing with some rough and unsettling uh, waves. But as for the Erie, uh, those rough and unsettling waves had forced a good number of her passengers to stay put in their cabins despite already being sick. Boy, if I was on board Erie, uh, I, I'd rather stay put in my cabin and get better rather than being outside and dealing with um, rough and unsettling waves and not knowing what else could come my way that might make me even feel more unpleasant than I already am. Now, the early evening of August 9, 1841, saw Erie crew members slated to go on to night duty, but but before performing, um, going on uh, scheduled shifts, all would have been uh, resting. Everyone uh, would have been resting before going on their um, assigned shift. The firemen would have been required to uh, continue feeding the furnace. As for sunset, it was an hour or two away, but all was quiet aboard Erie. Given that Erie left 10 minutes after 4 o'clock on Monday, August the 9th, sunset's not due for an hour or two away, so probably at best we're looking at sometime just shy of 7 o'clock when this will happen. The bigger question is, folks, is Erie going to uh, be okay by the time sunset arrives? I mean, will Erie still be... Um, Will Erie still be navigating uh, the waters okay? I mean, will, in other words, this, given the fact that one ship has, um, one ship has, um, has uh, stopped for, for now and has uh, docked at the port in uh, Dunkirk, I'm almost beginning to wonder would Erie see um, DeWitt Clinton? And if so, would Erie's commander do the same thing and dock until the weather subsides, gets better? Who knows? We really don't know. But what, we, what I do know is that we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, segment, as always. And when I'm on the air again next, folks, we are going to actually talk about, and this is the next chapter to our book, to our book topic uh, podcast series, actually titled Disaster on Lake Erie. So I'm beginning to wonder, folks, in this next podcast segment, that if, in fact, we will be talking about the inevitable. And if so, how bad will the inevitable be? And if so, can there, can there be anything done to still avoid this inevitable? Can there be anything that could be done to modify it. Those are the questions we will have to figure out when I'm on the air again next. Thank you for your time as always, and thank you again for being such ardent listeners, and I look forward to being back on the air again with, with all of you next time. Take care for now. Stay safe.